Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 213, Has Bauckham Clarified His Divine Identity Theory? Part 1. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a sort of follow-up to a previous one, which was episode number 13, 200 episodes ago. That episode was called On Bauckham's Bargain, and it was about the thesis of the well-known scholar Dr. Richard Bauckham that all the New Testament authors hold what he calls a Christology of Divine Identity. Podcast 13 is about a paper that was published in Theology Today in 2013 called On Bauckham's Bargain, and in that paper I try very hard to give a fair yet direct critique of his thesis. In part, my abstract says, it is argued that Bauckham's thesis is unclear and that on one interpretation it is manifestly self-inconsistent, while on the other it is too thin in content to do the work Bauckham assigns it which is expressing, quote, the highest possible Christology, end quote. I thus argue that the theoretical costs of Bauckham's theory outweigh its theoretical benefits. So, in the simplest possible terms, my criticism was that Dr. Bauckham's thesis, his theory, is too unclear to help us correctly read the New Testament. Now, Dr. Bauckham has never, to my knowledge, responded in any way to this article, Why has he not responded? I have no idea, so I won't speculate. What's so interesting to me, and frankly a bit disturbing, is that so many evangelical scholars have, I think, uncritically bought into this thesis that the New Testament writers include Jesus within the divine identity. And so you see this popping up in all sorts of places, in biblical scholarship by people like Gordon Fee, in popular evangelical apologetics, in systematic theologians, even in analytic philosophers. So naturally, I was very interested to learn that in 2017, Dr. Bauckham gave a talk entitled Divine Identity as a Conceptual Tool for Understanding New Testament Christology. This was given at the Logos Institute at the 2017 Logos Conference at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And on the blog post for this episode, I've got a link to their YouTube video where you can both hear and see the talk. In this and in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to present the audio of Dr. Bauckham's session with some commentary by yours truly. I have to warn you, the sound quality is pretty poor. I guess what was posted was just the sound coming into the video camera. I've edited it. I've cut out some stumbles, some noise. So I've edited it for length, and I've tried as best I can using the best technology I have to make it more understandable. But before we go to Dr. Bauckham, I just want to make a basic conceptual distinction that's really universal among analytic philosophers, but it's something that's hard to fit into this talk, and that's the distinction between numerical and qualitative identity. So identity just means sameness. And there are, seems, fundamentally different kinds of sameness. Think about identical twins. Say a couple of young ladies, you look at them, you find them hard to tell apart. It seems that whatever quality one has is also a quality that the other has. You might say they're indistinguishable, 
But of course, you don't mean that in a strict sense. Actually, once you get to know them, there are some differences of personality or differences in the way they act or carry themselves or slight physical differences. So notice that identity in the sense of qualitative similarity comes in degrees. There are degrees of similarity. Some twins, for instance, are very, very similar, and some twins are just a little bit similar, right? There's a sliding scale there. And also, there are different aspects of similarity. If we're just giving examples with people, two people might be alike in their political views, but unlike in their bodies. Or people might be alike in their tastes in ice cream and very different in their tastes regarding coffee. Okay, so qualitative identity is just similarity. That's just what we mean. It comes in degrees. There are different aspects of it. Now, there's also numerical identity. Numerical identity is a relation that can never obtain between two things. Numerical identity is only a relation between a thing and itself. So you could argue about whether it's strictly speaking a relation or not. It might depend on your ontology of relations. But when someone makes a claim of numerical identity, for instance, they say Samuel Clemens just is Mark Twain, what you're supposed to do then is take the concept you have of Samuel Clemens or the box in which you put information about Samuel Clemens and take the concept of Mark Twain or the box in which you store information about Mark Twain and you're supposed to realize that really there's only one box. Samuel Clemens just is Mark Twain and so whatever is true of one is going to be true of the other. There's just one being we're talking about. So, as concerns people in the Bible, you are supposed to realize, if you're a careful reader, that Saul just is Paul. And you're supposed to recognize that Abram just is Abraham. Now, you can talk about the names and say that Abram and Abraham are co-referential. That's true. They're just pointers to the same guy, the same being. Or we can say Abraham just is Abram and vice versa. The one just is the other. There's only one being here. So notice that numerical identity doesn't come in degrees. It's just an all-or-nothing thing. A and B either are the same thing or they aren't. It makes no sense to talk about degrees of identity, nor do there seem to be kinds of identity. Some people have thought that there are kinds of identity, but really most metaphysicians now think that Numerical identity is just a simple, fundamental concept. In a sense, it can't really be defined if by defined you mean defined in terms of other concepts. Of course, we can also talk about the same man, the same horse, the same rock, the same planet, the same God. But if some A and B are the same anything, that implies that they are numerically one. And this type of identity, numerical identity, it excludes there being any difference between the things that we're talking about. And we have to throw in a qualification here. I think this has to be put in terms of intrinsic features instead of relational features, and we have to add the qualification at one time or in eternity. Clearly, things change through time, and yet they still remain the same thing. So you're a little bit different yesterday than you are today, and yet this is the life of one and the same human person that we're talking about. So numerical sameness, we all know by experience, is consistent with change through time. Go back to the example of Paul and Saul. If Paul just is Saul and vice versa, if we're just talking about one man here, 
there can't be anything true of Saul that isn't true of Paul if we're talking about one and the same time, right? So Saul can't be in Jerusalem and Paul be outside Jerusalem at one and the same time. Now, philosophers have discussed a lot of interesting kinds of puzzle cases. So, for instance, maybe a person used to know Paul back when Paul was a persecutor of the Christian movement. But this person's never heard Saul of Tarsus referred to as Paul. So you might say Jack believes that Saul was persecuting Christians in a certain year, and yet Jack does not believe that Paul was persecuting Christians in that year. So, aha, here's the difference between Saul and Paul, right? Saul is such that Jack believes him to have been persecuting Christians in that year, and Paul isn't like that. So isn't there a difference there between Saul and Paul? Well, it's not a difference in the man himself, right? doesn't matter what you call him, that guy was persecuting the early Christian movement in that year. If someone doesn't know that he's now called Paul, well, that's interesting, but no, that doesn't seem like a real difference between Paul and Saul. That's just a person who hasn't quite got straight on who is who. So yeah, if A and B are the same thing, then whether at some particular time or in eternity, they just can't differ in any way because they're numerically the same thing. This is just the insight that a thing can't be and not be a certain way at a certain time or in eternity. So what if you say Jesus and God are identical? Well, if you mean qualitatively identical, that's to say that they are similar. And I think that's straightforwardly asserted in the New Testament. Jesus is making this very point when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's because they're like one another. They're doing the same sorts of things. They're about the same project. They have the same sort of character. If you say that Jesus and God are identical and you mean numerical identity, then you've just said that Jesus and God couldn't differ in any way. Which seems to be obviously wrong, because according to the New Testament, and really according to anybody's theology, whether they're Trinitarian or Unitarian or just confused, there are going to be differences between Jesus and God. For instance, if you're a Trinitarian, you think that God is tripersonal. You don't think Jesus is tripersonal. You think God sent his son. You don't think Jesus sent his son. So it's a very radical claim to say that Jesus and God are identical, if by that you mean numerically identical. For more on this, you might want to check out my podcast number 124, A Challenge to Jesus is God Apologists. Analytic philosophers also talk about personal identity insofar as they believe in persons. Personal identity is commonly understood to mean identity plus personhood. So if A and B are the same person, that means A is a person and that B is a person and that A just is B and B just is A. So we say that Paul and Saul are the same person. That means Saul is a person and that Paul is a person and that Saul just is Paul. There aren't two of them. There's just one being there. And if we're talking about personal identity, we can be talking about sameness at one time or sameness at different times. And that gets into a whole set of interesting metaphysical questions about what does it take for a person to remain numerically the same through time? For instance, you think that you used to be five years old, but 
there isn't all that much in common between you and that cute little five-year-old kid. Innumerable things have changed. Your bodies are very different. Your minds are very different. So what is it because of which you used to be that kid? And we've now found out that that kid has grown up to be you. Well, then you get into the metaphysics of human persons. Is it the sameness of soul? That is to say, the numerical identity of the five-year-old soul with the soul that you have right now? Or should this be understood in terms of mental sameness or certain kinds of causal and similarity relations between the states of mind, between you, the five-year-old, and all the intervening people? This gets into very complicated questions about the metaphysics of selves or human persons specifically. These common distinctions go right along with the standard sort of logic that's taught in analytic philosophy, but I won't go into that now. But because analytic philosophers have had a basic class in modern logic, that's one reason why this understanding is so common nowadays. What Dr. Bauckham has done is he's decided to work with a continental philosopher named Paul Ricoeur and his discussion of what he calls two different kinds of sameness and specifically two kinds of sameness as regards people. And before we hear from Dr. Bauckham, I want to emphasize something that I think is often overlooked. Dr. Bauckham has been saying these things for, I guess, about 20 years now, something like that. And to a lot of people familiar with evangelical biblical scholarship, these are now just familiar theses. And I think many people just hear talk of including Jesus and the divine identity as just talking about, quote, the deity of Christ using different terms. Now, that's another unclear thesis, but that's a discussion for another time. But what I think is overlooked just now because of familiarity and Dr. Bauckham's stature as a leading scholar is the really strong chutzpah that's involved in this proposal. He presents this as a kind of golden key that will unlock the real Christology that's being asserted by all the Gospels and all the other New Testament writings. Now, none of these writings talk about divine identity. They don't use this terminology. He's just swooping in and saying, well, this is what they're really doing. Okay, well, that's a bold hypothesis. Let's see if it actually fits the data. The other thing is that Dr. Bauckham believes that the traditional Catholic language about nature or essence is no longer helpful and so has become out of date, and he's offering his language as a replacement for that. Now, if you've studied the 4th century debates about language, about Christ and God, this may strike you as just unbelievably bold. Well, it is bold. Generally, I like bold scholarship. I think scholars tend to be cowardly and conservative and to just color within the lines, so to speak. But, you know, a bold hypothesis could be a big success or it could be a big failure. The devil's in the details. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bauckham's presentation.
Let's go then to Dr. Bauckham's presentation, and rather than just play it in its entirety, I'm going to interrupt it now and then, not because I don't respect Dr. Bauckham or don't think he should be heard. I think he should be heard. I think he should be heard fully. But the reason I'm going to interrupt is because from where I stand, some things that he's saying are rather opaque. They're rather unclear, and they need some explaining and some unpacking. So I am going to object a few times along the way, but a lot of my comments will just be trying to understand really what it is that he's saying. Clarity is what he's aiming at after all, so I'm trying to help that along. So without further ado, Dr. Richard Bauckham in his 2017 presentation, Divine Identity as a Conceptual Tool for Understanding New Testament Christology. And I'm going to summarize the first three parts, and I can more or less read the final part. And the first part really is a summary of the proposal for understanding the New Testament Christology that I have made in the policy in various publications. It's what I call divine identity Christology, because I argue that the category of divine identity fits the way that early Judaism thought about God better than the category of divine nature. God of Israel was portrayed predominantly, though not exclusively, in terms of the analogy of human personal identity. But there is, of course, the recognition that God transcends the analogy. In the Second Temple period, the issue of monotheism, of course, is prominent for Jews in the pagan world of that period. The God of Israel is the one and only God, but what is unique about this God Two most useful ways of answering the question. Useful because they put God in a unique position vis-à-vis all other reality are first that God is the only creator of all things. God is the creator, all other things are created by him. Secondly, God is the only sovereign ruler of all things. All other things are subject to his rule. Now, of course, there are creatures who rule over other creatures, but God is the only one to whom all rule and authority is subject. These two aspects of God's unique identity are, if you like, divine functions or roles in relation to all other reality, to the whole of creation. They would not only be considered as such aspects of divine nature, they are readily understood as aspects of divine identity. They are unique to God, intrinsic to divine identity, and God cannot delegate them to persons who are not God. So the Christological argument is that early Christians very deliberately portrayed Jesus as, uh, I should say, primarily the exalted Jesus, as participating in the pre-existent exalted Jesus, as par- participating in these divine roles, uh, that is taking part in the creation of all things and participating in the divine rule over all things, symbolized by his sitting on the cosmic throne from which God rules all things. And the way I therefore put the relationship of Jesus to God is either that Jesus is included in the unique identity of the one God, or Jesus belongs to the identity of the one God. And I intended those as much more precise statements than, for example, Jesus is identified with God 
which could mean a whole variety of things. Early Christians remained monotheists because they did not add Jesus to the one God, but included him in the unique identity of the one God. So that was his little recap or summary of what his theory has been. He's replacing traditional Catholic language with he thinks something better and he thinks something clearer. Maybe the most important thing he said there is that among the functions unique to God in Second Temple Judaism are creation of the cosmos and governance of the cosmos, and he says these cannot be delegated to another. Okay, so then if Jesus is presented as being in some sense the creator and as governing from God's throne, then that means Jesus just is God himself because God can't delegate these to another, right? So, one line of his thinking just seems to straightforwardly collapse Jesus and God. Jesus just is God, or he's something like a personality or mode of God, a way that God interacts with the cosmos. But he says it's not a different God. He says in the New Testament, this is the same God that we're talking about. Okay, but if the Father and the Son are the same God, they're just the same. To be the same God is for each to be a God and for them to be identical. So if they're the same God, then the one just is the other. Jesus just is God and God just is Jesus. You've collapsed the distinction between them. Let me just briefly mention that it'd be hard, if this is what the New Testament was saying, to make sense of the early Logos theories in the 100s and in the 200s in early Christian history, because they do not say that the Logos is the same God as the one true God. They say he's a second God. And in fact, they pretty clearly imply, many of them, that the Logos is a lesser and yet still in some sense divine being than the one true God. So no, they're not the same God. The Logos may to some extent participate in the divinity of the Father, participate in a platonic sense of derivation, which implies a degree of similarity. But yeah, the mainstream Christians who weren't into Logos theory objected that they had introduced a second God. Now, how on earth could all this happen? if the New Testament clearly presents Jesus and the Father as the same God? I think that would be a hard question for him. In any case, back to Dr. Bauckham. Well, that's what I've said before in much more detail. The purpose of this paper is to evolve from there by thinking more about the category of personal identity and what it means to apply that to God, God of Israel, and then in Christology. For that purpose, I have taken up from Paul Ricoeur's account of personal identity, which I found very helpful in many ways, but I found it particularly helpful about understanding the biblical portrayal of divine identity on the analogy of human personal identity. Ricoeur's account was human personal identity. And among other advantages, Ricoeur's account takes very seriously that human personal identity is a narrative identity. Therefore, to think about identity, we must think about the way in which a person is identified and identifiable as the same person over time and through change. Let me just pause here for a minute. In the beginning, I distinguished qualitative identity from numerical identity, which is to say, similarity from numerical sameness. Now, Dr. Bauckham is bringing up a different realm of ideas, which is identification. This is how or by what means, specifically by what linguistic means, do we refer to somebody? 
and by which of an object's discernible properties are we able to tell it apart from other things. So call this identification, being able to recognize something and distinguish it from other things. Now we're in the realm of epistemology. We're in the realm of human knowledge. Okay, so when he's talking about divine identity, in many cases he's just talking about how, based on scriptures, Jews and early Christians would refer to God using certain ideas or certain words. Back to Dr. Bauckham. How does personal identity negotiate the polarity of continuity and change, <coughs> sameness and difference? Answering this question may help us with some of the most puzzling issues in Christology, which are also about continuity through change in God's narrative identity. Okay, so we're back to metaphysics here. We're now talking about how can something remain the same through time. What happened to the epistemology topic? Well, I think it's going to be mixed into the metaphysical topic. He continues. Ricoeur distinguishes two poles of personal identity to which he refers by using the Latin pronouns idem and ipse. Idem refers to sameness. Ricoeur calls it the what of personal identity. Ipse refers to selfhood. He calls it the who of personal identity. Idem is the object of identifying reference, a personal name, for example, unique to one person, or an identifying description that refers uniquely to one person to no other. Those are referring to idem identity. Ipse is the personal subject, the I, that negotiates its enduring identity through change. All sorts of objects have idem identity, but only personal ipse identity. So how are idem and ipse held together in the narrative identity of person? Wow, okay, so we're into Ricoeur's terminology. He wants to say there are two kinds of sameness. There's being the same person, that's what he's calling ipse identity. And then there's being the same thing. Well, of course, a person is a thing. So if A and B are the same person, they're going to also be the same thing. And of course, A and B could be the same thing without being the same person because they could just fail to be persons at all. A and B could be terms that refer to a certain rock. I guess that's clear enough to apply. Let's see how he applies it. So how are Edem and Ipsa held together? in the narrative identity person. Wow, I, hmm, I don't know what the question is here that he's setting out to answer. It sounds like he's wondering how is it that a thing can last through time and change, which is a metaphysical question. But I, I know that he's about now to switch the subject back to the subject of identifying, that is characteristics or terms that enable us to refer to something. Uh, two main aspects of this. First, idem identity requires stable characteristics that enable others to identify the person as the same person. So by idem identity, he's talking about that someone is able to recognize a thing as the same thing as before. In other words, that someone's able to recognize the numerical sameness of a thing through time. But of course, something might remain the same through time without anybody being able to recognize it. There's a metaphysical question of what sameness through time requires. 
there's an epistemological question about how it is we re-identify things or how it is we know that something has lasted through time. I think he's not separating these questions. Let's hear that bit again. Uh, two main aspects of this. First, EDM identity requires stable characteristics that enable others to identify the person as the same person. That could be true, of course, of tables and chairs or mountains or anything. But in the case of persons, these characteristics include what we call character, which, while it is subject to change, we expect to remain, to, to, to maintain enough consistency to be identifiable as the character of that person. In the form of character, idea of identity overlaps, except because it is personal acts that maintain that consistency of character. Because his character is the what of the who. And then secondly, the self, it is said, maintains identity over time and through change by acts of self-constancy, such as promise giving and promise keeping. Here, Ipset identity overlaps with idem identity because it depends on that aspect of stable character that we call faithfulness. Now, it sounds like Dr. Bauckham just said that a self, a person, manages to remain the same through time by acts of faithfulness. That just seems obviously incorrect. You can be the same person through time and be faithless and untrustworthy. Your sameness through time is just a more fundamental aspect of you than what your character happens to be or what your actions happen to be. So I'm not sure why he's saying that. Note that both character and promise keeping are relational. <coughs> the identity of the person is maintained through change by characteristic behavior towards others and reliability in relation to others. Now, a third relevant element, and relevant to I'm thinking about divine identity, um, in Ricoeur's analysis of personal identity is that it is the category of acquired identifications. And these are identifications of the self with recurses, values, norms, ideals, models, and heroes. And we could easily add to that list, why not add spouses, children, friends, institutions, and so forth. Identifications with something other than the self. Um, and because says these two are maintained by faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity. Okay, so when Dr. Bauckham talks about acquired identifications, to me, he's clearly within the subject matter of epistemology. He's talking about how we identify or refer to something and distinguish it from other things. And when he talks about identifications, I think he really just means associations. So an identification of a thing is something that we associate it with. So we associate Abraham Lincoln with freeing the slaves and with the Civil War, and with the presidency, and with hats and beards, and old-timey-looking daguerreotype photographs. So an identification is just something that we mentally associate with a thing, and it can be a way that we use to refer to the thing. We can talk about the tall guy in the hat with the beard. We can talk about the guy who used to be president, referring to him through his relationships to other things. All kinds of different relationships. 
we could be talking about interpersonal relationships or we could be talking about other relationships like having a beard or having worn tall hats and things like this. Back to Dr. Bauckham. This account of personal identity applies, I think, very readily to the Hebrew Bible's portrayal of God in terms of a narrative identity. This God has unique identifying descriptions that define him as this God and no other. He has a personal name, the Tetragrammaton, and he can be referred to uniquely as the God who made heaven and earth, or the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. Right. So what he's saying is that God, according to scripture, according to ancient Jewish and Christian tradition, has unique identifying descriptions that are supposed to apply to him and not to any other, such as creator of the heavens and the earth. And he also has a personal name, Yahweh, or we can just use a title like the creator. And these are ways that we refer to God. Right. And notice that the use of a personal name and personal pronouns assumes that God is a person. That's how these ancient languages tell us that the God they're talking about is literally a self, a he and not an it or a they. God's character in the classic revelation to Moses, Exodus 34, 6-7, echoed many times in both Testaments. God's character describes God as he relates to Israel and to the world. <coughs> And it's by these characteristics that God is identified in his dealings with his people. Right, as the same self. God's idem identity, his character, and his ipse identity are connected by his faithfulness and self-constancy, which also appear in promise giving. Right, so throughout the story of Israel, it's one and the same God, one and the same being we're talking about, and his faithfulness is evident throughout the story. Uncontroversial points, I would think. And of course, all these things, I constantly use the word faithfulness, or the idea of covenant, these things relate in the Old Testament to the notion of covenant. That God is the same through the changing circumstances of his relationship with Israel and the world includes, notably, surprises and new insights into the divine character and purpose, so that there is consistency through change. An objectionable. And finally, on the biblical account of God as, uh, as personal identity, uh, the biblical account of God makes much of his acquired identifications. He is the God of Israel. He is the creator of the whole cosmos. Mm -hmm. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. Mm -hmm. Note that these objects of divine self-identification do not themselves become part of his identity. His relationship to them, his commitment to them, become part of his identity. So Israel does not become part of God's identity, but God's commitment to Israel becomes part of God's identity. Now, I think by identity there, I think Dr. Bauckham just means God's characteristics by which we are able to refer to him and distinguish him from other things. So, right, Israel is not characteristic of God, but that God is the God of Israel is a relational characteristic that he has, and so that's a way of distinguishing him from other alleged deities. Right. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bauckham applies these thoughts about personal identity to New Testament Christology.
the fourth section, which uh, I call implications for divine identity Christology. Can we use this discussion to clarify the sense in which God belongs to what is included in the unique identity of God? Well, notice that this phrase, included in the identity of something, has not at all been clarified, and it does not wear its meaning on its surface. So let's see if we can figure out, as he explains this, what he means by being included in God's identity. First, how do the acquired identifications that can, can become part of someone's identity apply in Christology? A high human Christology, I use that term because it's the, the term used by uh, Daniel Kirk in a recent book, which uh, some of you know, um, a high human Christology could use the category in this way, Jesus is an acquired identification of the God, who henceforth is indissolubly the God of Jesus Christ, just as he is the God of Israel and the God who created and rules all things. This pattern of thought would fit the role of Jesus as the new Israel, or the new Adam, the representative of Israel, Okay, let me paraphrase. He's saying, what if we just say that Jesus is an acquired identification of God? Okay, what is that? It's a thing which in our minds we closely associate with God, and therefore we can use when we refer to God. So where before we could talk about the God of Abraham or the God of Moses, now we can talk about the God of Jesus. But I think the New Testament also includes Jesus with God on God's side of these acquired identifications of God. Okay, so that's not enough. Jesus is, so to speak, on God's side. Wow, that, that needs some unpacking, doesn't it? Does that mean he's the same God as the Father? Or does that just mean he is a God, but not the same one? Are we just leaving open the question whether he's the same God or a different God? and just saying that he's divine? He continues. Jesus is to Israel and the world as God is to Israel and the world. He bears the unique divine name that identifies God as the God of Israel, and as such also to other people. Jesus participates in God's sovereign working of things, and even in creation of all things. This, I think, makes Jesus intrinsic to the unique divine identity. Makes Jesus himself, not just God's relation to Jesus, makes Jesus himself intrinsic to the unique divine identity in the way that is not true of Israel or the world. It means that whereas God is the God of Israel, but Israel is not God, God is the God of Jesus, and Jesus is God. Both Israel and Jesus are, in a sense, identified with God, Identified as God. Well, it sounds then that Jesus and God are the same self. And if they're the same self, they're just the same, that is, numerically the same, just like if Saul and Paul are the same self, they have to be the same man. If they're the same man, they have to be the same being. 
So it looks like Dr. Bauckham has just collapsed the father and the son of the New Testament into one and the same being. If he hasn't done that, it's unclear why not. But this much is clear. He's saying not just that the New Testament associates Jesus closely with God, with his God. It's saying that Jesus is his own God. Well, I wouldn't have thought that God of was a relation that you could bear to yourself. So it's a very strange claim. The mean of it is unclear. He's just said that according to the New Testament, Jesus is God and just ran right past it. What does that mean? It could mean a bunch of different things. As I said before, if he's right about the New Testament, then it's really inexplicable how the Logos theologians come along and think that Jesus is a second God. And they don't think that Jesus and God are the creator in the same sense. What people like Justin Martyr thought is that God was too transcendent to directly interact with material creation. And so when it was time to create, he expressed or spoke out his inner word, thus bringing into existence an intermediate being, intermediate between the transcendent source of all and the cosmos. And it was this intermediate being who, so to speak, got his hands dirty. So basically they think that the Logos is the direct creator of the cosmos and that God is the indirect creator who only creates through the Logos. Now that's a kind of delegation. So they didn't think that God could not delegate the business of creation. In fact, they thought that was the only way that God could create because of his own transcendence. A strange view? Yes. But how can Dr. Bauckham tell us that the New Testament clearly is ascribing creation in the same sense to God and to Jesus? We know the passages he has in mind. There are a few passages that sound like they're saying that God created all things through the Son. Okay, well, then they're not the creator in the same sense, but in closely related to different senses. Back to Dr. Bauckham and his quasi-dialogue with Dr. Kirk. Um, secondly, uh, the, the three paragraphs from now on, number two, three, and four, are taking up questions about Christology and continuity of identity in God. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus and Pentecost are a narrative of astonishing change in which, to say the least, God is profoundly involved. How is God's self-constancy maintained through these wide-ranging discontinuities in his history uh, with Israel and the world? We may say that throughout, God is faithful to his loving purpose for Israel and the world. We can add that he is faithful to that purpose and indeed fulfills it through the mutual faithfulness of God the Father and Jesus his Son. God is faithful to his word and his loving commitment to the world through the mutual loving faithfulness of the Father and the Son, which is maintained through the deepest discontinuity, the abandonment Jesus suffers on the cross, and in this way is maintained through and beyond all human abandonment. In this way, the events of the history of Jesus do not threaten the identity of God in Israel by intruding a second human person into his identity. Rather, they are the surprising way in which the identity of God in Israel is maintained and fulfilled. Okay, so 
Let me paraphrase. He thinks that the New Testament teaches that God came in human form and died, and yet it is the same God as was talked about before in the Old Testament. And this God is being portrayed as faithful to his earlier promises. And the way that God's faithfulness is shown is by the relationship of the Father and the Son. My only comment about this is that he's treating God as a self, and this self shows his own virtues through the Father and the Son, who looks like he's presupposing are really not different from the divine self. So it looks like the Father and the Son are something less than selves, activities of God, modes of God, expressions of God, eternal streams in the life of God. There's something subpersonal, and they're the way that the person of God, that the one divine self, reveals himself to the world. That's what I understand him to be saying there. As to the humanity of Jesus, or the human nature of Jesus, it's not clear to me what Dr. Bauckham does with that. In fact, it's hard to fit a man into something like a mode of God, or a personality of God, or an expression of God, or something like this. Those don't seem to be in the right category to be a man. So it's unclear whether or not this is docetic, whether or not, on his view, Jesus just appears to be a human so, therefore, he turns to that topic. Point three. With regard to the divine identity of Jesus in relation to his humanity, the New Testament does tell a story of a divine subject who becomes fully human and is the particular human being Jesus, living, dying, risen, and exalted. This apparently simple continuity of self <coughs> between the pre-existent and the incarnate one, such that Paul can call the pre-existent one Jesus, and a Johannine Jesus can speak of his own pre-existence, may seem naive. Two quick comments here. First, I think we all know the passages he's mentioning in John, which can be read as Jesus remembering his pre-existence. And this, I think, is well addressed in Trinity's podcast. 62 by Dr. Dustin Smith. Now, about the case where Paul calls someone who's pre existent Jesus, I don't know which passage he's referring to there. As far as I know, there aren't any of those. Jesus in the New Testament, as far as I know, is the name of a man who was born to Mary and so is not applied to what Catholic theology calls the eternal, fully divine Logos. But maybe someone in the comment could tell me what passage he has in mind there. But let's suppose he's right, that Paul talks about someone who existed before the time of Jesus as Jesus, and suppose that Jesus in the Gospel of John remembers his existence in a more glorious condition before he took on the form of a man. Well, in both cases, the writer is clearly, repeatedly assuming that this one is a different self than God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus conspicuously distinguishes between himself and God and submits himself to God and gives God the credit for his miraculous deeds and for his wonderful teaching. And he even says that the Father is his God and our God as well in chapter 20. Paul constantly distinguishes between God and Jesus. For instance, you could look at the opening of any letter that's attributed to Paul in the New Testament and boom, right there, he sends greetings and blessings 
from the two of them, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is of a piece, I guess, with the uninhibited anthropomorphism of the Old Testament. It is therefore relevant to remember that that bold anthropomorphism goes hand in hand with the recognition of its analogous character in that God, the God of whom it is used is also portrayed as transcending human categories. It can surely only be that divine transcendence of human categories that enables the continuity of identity between the pre-existent and the incarnate Son. Now, it looks like he's just straight up confused God and the man Jesus because he talks about New Testament language of Jesus and says it's kind of a continuation of Old Testament anthropomorphism. Well, but those are just two different characters in the New Testament. He ignores this completely. These are two characters that, as he notes, have an interpersonal relationship, and they're distinguished in various ways. They're different in various ways. They're qualitatively different. They can't, therefore, be numerically the same. But he's talking about them as if there's just one divine self here, God slash Jesus, and that's just obviously what the New Testament says. Well, nope. New Testament presents the man Jesus as the Son of God, not as God himself. That's the explicit thesis of all four Gospels, not to mention the book of Acts, not to mention all the other books. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Dr. Bauckham briefly considers the subject of Jewish monotheism and Christian Trinitarianism. says about the unique identity of God, mm -hmm. what it does is to open up a kind of complexity within the unique identity. Just notice here that we are in the realm of speculative interpretation. The New Testament never breathes a single word about complexity within God or within the identity of God. Leaving pneumatology aside only because in present context, the topic of Christology, it turns out that relationality, commitment, and identification with the other are more intrinsic to the divine identity than they are to human personal identity. So intrinsic has a technical meaning, which is it's the opposite of relational. It's the features a thing has just in itself, as opposed to the features a thing has because of its relationship to something else. But I'm pretty sure that when Dr. Bauckham, in this context, says intrinsic, it just means important, or maybe central, or something like that. So when he says that relationality is more intrinsic to divine identity than it is to human identity, he's just saying that it's more important or central. And by identity, again, I'm not sure if he means 
the numerical sameness of a thing through time or things that we associate with it or features we detect in it by which we can refer to it. When he talks about including Jesus in the divine identity and being on God's side, he's saying something metaphysical. He's saying that there are not two gods here, but one God. It's unclear why that follows. He needs a metaphysical conclusion. It's not clear to me how he gets there by reflecting on ways that we refer to God in biblical tradition. The Father is who he is only in relation to the Son, and vice versa. Though relationality as such is intrinsic to human identity, no single relationship constitutes who each of us is in the way that the Father-Son relationship evidently does in God. Okay. Constitutes is another technical term that he just employs. I think he just means that part of the narrative identity of the one God are statements about the relationship of father to son. Okay, and insofar as that quote constitutes who God is, in other words, that's like an important part of how we describe God, how we refer to God, right, to one in the same person or self. All right, well, there's just one self there then. There's one personal identity had by God, and included within that are truths about the Father and Son relating to one another. But of course, it's really all just an expression of the faithfulness of God. At this point, once again, the human analogy is transcended, though it illuminates and we are on a level where what seems a contradiction between the Old Testament's portrayal of God as analogous to a human individual and the portrayal, at least in some parts of the New Testament, of God as analogous to a plurality of intensely interrelated subjects. I have to say, I think this is wrong in two ways. The Bible doesn't say anything about God being analogous to a human individual. That's a later medieval theory that's foisted upon the Bible. What the Bible does is it portrays God as like a human individual, and so as literally being a self. And the way that the Bible asserts that God is a self is by using personal pronouns of God. And also, you see God appearing in humanoid fashion, which naturally goes hand in hand with the idea that he is a self, not a human self, but a self, a he and not an it or a they. So it's definitely part of the content of biblical revelation that God is personal, which is just to say that God is a certain, wonderful, powerful, unique self. That is part of the content. It's not put by using the term self, but it's put by use of personal pronouns. As far as God being analogous to a plurality of intensely related subjects, I have to call his bluff on that one. There's nothing like that in the New Testament anywhere. Where do you have anywhere in the New Testament God being a group? Or even just the twosome? There's God, and then there's the Son of God, and they love one another. The Son of God does the will of the Father. The two are cooperating. They're on the same team. Father sends the Son, and so on. But in all of that, the one God is one of the two parties. It's the Father. Where exactly is the part in the New Testament where you see the one God in any way being portrayed as 
a plurality of intensely related subjects. I claim it's just not there. It's imposed on the text by people coming along with a later theory. Furthermore, if the New Testament straightforwardly asserts that God is a self and also that God is multiple selves, it looks like the New Testament, or if you like the Bible as a whole, is confused. It's contradicting itself, saying that God is and isn't a single self. Okay, well, he slips in this talk of analogy, and he wants to say that the content of biblical teaching is that God is analogous to a self, and that God is analogous to a plurality of intensely related subjects. Okay, but that's all consistent with God just literally being a self, right? You might think, well, there's a tension there. Well, he's gotten rid of the tension by using the analogy qualification, but maybe he means it more strongly because he seems to immediately go on to address the apparent inconsistency of the scheme. He doesn't seem contradictory because the reality necessarily eludes us. That's it. That's his easy breezy assertion of what I have called in my published work positive mysterianism. Yeah, it's never going to make sense to us, so of course it's going to come out seeming to be contradictory. Well, that looks like a pretty bad problem for his theory. It looks like it's uncharitable to the authors of the New Testament. Are they that confused that they're saying things that seem to be incoherent? But he's not going to emphasize this. He immediately jumps back to talking about God and to thinking about God as a single self, as a he, as something which has self-constancy or faithfulness. Nevertheless, we can affirm the self-constancy of the God of Israel in his loving character and purpose in the world is maintained and fulfilled in action through the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit in the divine triunity that is discernible in the New Testament. Thank you. So that's the end of his talk. Do you think that he clarified his thesis that in the New Testament Jesus is included in the divine identity? In my paper published in 2013, I noted that he says some things that sound like he's a social Trinitarian, which can be the thesis that the Father, Son, and Spirit really are three selves that really do enjoy an interpersonal relationship. And I couldn't reconcile that to his seeming implication that Jesus just is God himself. So it looks like the Father and Son would have to be something less than selves, although he doesn't lift a finger in this talk to clarify what they would be if not selves. Right? The one divine self is God. But then he also talks about God expressing his faithfulness through the Father and the Son, who are in some sense God. The only way I can make sense of that is that he thinks that they're modes of God or ways that God lives or ways that God acts. So then if you're thinking about the New Testament, and there you have the Father and the Son, really there is only one self at work there. But that one self isn't strictly speaking the Father or the Son, it's God it's God who's expressing himself in those two ways. So if this is right, and next week we'll hear the rest of the session, it's not clear if it is right, but if this is right, then Dr. Bauckham is really what I call a one-self Trinitarian. 
And I think that makes real problems for Christology because it's not clear that a mode of God or personality of God, a stream in the life of God, or whatever you want to say this is, it's not clear that this son that he's referring to can be a man. And it's also not clear that there is really a two-being, that is, two-person, two-self personal relationship between the Father and the Son, because they don't seem to be true selves. They are something like expressions of the one divine self in the way that he's explaining this. Now, is he really meaning to say that his account is apparently incoherent? Is he meaning to say that God is one self and also God is many selves? I don't think so because of the way he qualified it by talking about God as analogous to a self and God as analogous to multiple selves. Look, I'm analogous to a human self, and I'm also analogous to many human selves, just insofar as I have different personalities. There's Dale the professor, Dale the friend, Dale the father, right? Those are analogous to human persons, but they're not persons, they're not selves. There's really only one Dale, there's really only one self. Now, as to this triunity of God, which we just observe in the New Testament, I would beg to differ. If you think that's really rather obvious, then I'd like to know what your reaction is to podcast 189, which is called The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. And there, I explain why it's highly unlikely that any of the New Testament authors were presupposing or assuming a Trinitarian view of God. To the contrary, all the authors of the New Testament, as best I can tell, are assuming that the one God just is the Father. God is not only analogous to a self for them, he is a certain self, and also they tell you which one, it's the Father. It's not also the Son. The Son is a different being, it's a different character in the narrative, being which is not essentially immortal, like God, but which can die, and then can be given immortality. If I'm right, then people that say that there is a triune God portrayed in the New Testament are committing a fallacy of anachronism. They're projecting later ideas back into an earlier text. It's just as big a mistake, if I'm right, as saying that Thomas Jefferson taught something about the internet. Jefferson never had a single thought about the internet. It never entered his mind. It was not on his radar at all. And anything you think he said about the internet, well... That just can't be right. You must just be projecting. I have argued it's just as big a mistake to project the idea of a tripersonal God into the first century. It just isn't there. What is there is a theology that's incompatible with it, on which the one God is not tripersonal, but rather the one God just is the Father. The Father is explicitly the one true God and the one God, the unique God in the New Testament. In next week's podcast, we'll hear the response to Dr. Bauckham's talk from a commenter on his paper and from audience members who had various questions for him. He does say more there, and we'll see how much it adds to what we've heard so far. This week's thinking music has been the track Minstrel by Jason Shaw. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.